the last few weeks. Thank you for that love. My wife, right there. <laughs> yes. She'll be mentioned later in the sermon as well, so be prepared for that. Um, if uh, you visited with us over the past three weeks, you probably noticed that we've been singing differently each week. Two weeks ago, we were singing from the hymn books that you actually have in your pews there, and last week, we had more of a contemporary worship team lead us in worship, and obviously this week, we've had uh, been led by our gospel choir. The good news is next week... We have a mummer's string band coming. <laughs> Not true, and don't get me started on the mummers. Um, but this isn't just to keep you guessing, like what are they going to do week to week? Or because we can't figure out how we want to sing. We're drawing on some rich traditions each week that have value for who we are as a church. But the purpose is not to just do different music styles or even to give everybody sort of something they like so everybody can come and say, well, yeah, sometimes they do my, my style and I like that. Um, no, there's a more significant purpose in mind. Today's message is focused on helping us all see and embrace that purpose. And I'll say it like this, and I'll say it a couple of times. The purpose in our singing is to collectively worship God in ways that are pleasing to Him and befit who we are as a people of risen hope. I'll say that again. The purpose in our singing is to collectively worship God in ways that are pleasing to Him and befit who we are as a people of risen hope. And this is really where this passage that Rob just read takes us. Now, the big picture in this text is this. God's church should express unity in diversity. Diverse in background, united in Christ. In verse 11, Paul lists different groups of people, which is about as broad a cross-section of people of ethnic groups and social classes and political persuasions that you could imagine in his day. And I'd venture to say this, trust me, as diverse as we can feel here, we're not as diverse as the people Paul's talking to. So if this passage relates to them, it certainly relates to us. Yet he's able to proclaim unity, and we see there in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. Now, the deepest cause of disunity is not racial or social or political difference. It's our alienation from God and each other because of sin. Underneath all disunity, is alienation from God and from one another because of sin. Because of sin, Christ is not all or in all in this world. But praise be to God, though alienated people, we can be reconciled because our sin has been forgiven through the atoning death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He takes us to the solution for this problem of alienation, this lack of unity, this problematic diversity, and says the solution is the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the source of our unity. So we're a diverse group brought together through the saving forgiveness of Christ to be a unified body committed to loving each other as we've been loved in Christ. That's where he's driving. So let's take a moment and look around you. Yeah, I know it's awkward. 
I can see everybody. Think about this. Why are we all here? Why are we all here? One reason is that we're here to practice the unity in diversity that we're supposed to live every day in the week. If you thought about that, thought about this place, this gathering together on Sundays is where we practice something we want to live out every day. This is where we do the practice to figure out what unity feels like, how we do it, how we relate, how we talk, how we acknowledge that we have differences, but how we have unity in those differences, how we appreciate the diversity that we have, how we learn from one another, how we listen to one another, how we relate to one another in our differences without letting those differences divide us. In verse 15, we see peace and love and thanksgiving as the gospel glue that binds us together as one unified body. And so then we get to verse 16, and this is where we're focusing today. Paul actually gives a great way for us to practice. How do we practice unity in diversity? We practice unity in diversity. One way we can do that is with our voices. What we sing and why we sing and how we sing is an opportunity to practice unity in diversity. Let's look at verse 16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Commentator D.A. Carson wrote about this particular verse, how does our corporate life reflect the one new humanity that the New Testament envisions? Is there not the same need for Christians from highly different backgrounds to come together and recite one creed, read from one scripture, and jointly sing shared songs, thereby crossing race gaps, gender gaps, and generation gaps, standing in a shared lineage that reaches back through the centuries and is finally grounded in in the word, this very word we're reading right now. We're meant to walk out this word one way through our singing. Today we're going to celebrate what we sing and why we sing it. Now there's two principles from this text in verse 16 that we're going to need to keep in mind. The first is this. We want unity in what we sing. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That you is plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly. The idea behind that is that there is a standard that governs what we think and feel and sing. And that is the word of Christ. Other translations say, let, the, let it be a rich treasure in your hearts. What we sing must reflect the truth of Christ in the gospel. The word of Christ that Paul's talking about is the gospel truth. Truth matters because we're singing to God and about God to each other. Whatever music does to stir our emotion, it must not be at the expense of truth. Worship leader Bob Coffins said, while music speaks to the emotions, it's the truth that sets us free. Not music. Music cannot set you free. Only the truth can set you free. So if you come to church wanting the singing to get you into a spiritual mood, 
that may happen, but really, you're sort of missing the point. What causes us to sing is not the kind of music we sing, but the subject matter of the singing. It's the truth of Christ in our hearts that fuels true worship. That's the first one. We want unity in what we sing. The second one, we want diversity in how we sing. We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We don't really know what all these, those are, but we know Paul is intentional about saying singing is diverse. We can sing many different ways, many different forms, many different styles. Paul's advocating diverse musical expression to fit a diverse people. Remember, he's got a diverse people he's relating to, and they're all coming together trying to figure out how to sing together. And he's saying, well, let's experiment. Try different ways. Look at, what do you bring? What do you bring? What do you bring to the table? Let's all bring it together. Let's sing together and learn how to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's no right tradition or superior culture or best style. I don't know if you're like me, but my tendency is to think that the way I like to sing is the way they're singing around the throne in heaven right now. That's my mental picture. It's got blues guitar in it. But we all have that. And I think we're all going to be surprised in what's really being sung that it's actually maybe something ska, you know, I don't know, um, but if you come to sing with the congregation and choose to engage or not engage based on whether you like the musical style, you're missing the point. Theologian Vaughn Roberts said something really good on this. He said, if I identify an experience with a genuine encounter with God and only a certain kind of music gives me that experience, then it'll be very important for me that that kind of music is played regularly in my church. That'll cause no problems if everybody shares my taste. But if I... If others feel they need different kinds of music, there's bound to be trouble. That explains why music is one of the greatest causes of division in Christian circles. There's very little tolerance. We know that. Particular music styles are associated with an authentic encounter with God. Those with other preferences are dismissed as unspiritual old fuddy-duddies or mindless, frothy youngsters. Now, I don't really want to be an unspiritual old fuddy-duddy. I'd probably rather be a mindless, frothy youngster at this point in my life. But the point is, I don't want you to view me that way if we have different musical tastes. And I certainly don't want to view you that way. I want to respect and appreciate what has meaning for you based on your experience singing worship. We want to do that with others. It's the way we express unity in diversity. No matter what the style, if it tells the truth about Jesus, we should sing it as if we mean it. Now today I'm going to take us back to the three distinct worship traditions we've experienced over the past three weeks. I'm going to call them the hymn tradition, I'm going to call it the contemporary worship tradition, I'm going to call it the gospel tradition. And these are not the only ones we could address or express. There's a wonderful messianic Jewish tradition we could, uh, we could tap into. There's uh, wonderful traditions in the African world. There's traditions in the Latino world. There's from Asian cultures. Wherever the gospel's gone, it has produced a worshiping people, and that people has found ways to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in ways that have glorified Jesus in that cultural setting. 
the England's going to experience psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in the Esan culture of Thailand. The gospel is not bound by culture. Worship of God is not bound by culture. We have to... My hope is that we can explore some other traditions in the future in our corporate worship, and we're looking at ways to do that. And so I don't think it'll ever be mummers, but I, I do think there are other traditions and cultures we can, we can experience and embrace. My dream is that we can come each Sunday morning and experience the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and really make melody in my, our hearts to the Lord, as Paul says in a parallel verse in, um, in Ephesians, unified in the truth and diverse in worship style and tradition. So, my three points are going to be basically these three traditions. I'm going to address them in chronological order. In other words, the order in which they developed historically. Some ground rules so that I survive. Um, I'm going to have to be very broad in the way I describe these traditions. You may have a deep love for one, and what I might say to you may not really express what you love about your tradition. I appreciate that. I have some familiarity with all these traditions, but, but I'm not a musicologist. In fact, I don't even know what a musicologist is, but it sounds like somebody who would know how to talk about these. Um, if you think I really miss it on the tradition you love, Touch base with me afterwards. I'm happy to talk. I want to learn. I'm in a learning process. I'm in an immersion experience process. Because I want to, I want to do this myself. I don't want to be, I want to play favorites with how I sing. I want to be able to sing in ways that I express diversity in the church. Second ground rule is I'm not going to critique excesses or weaknesses of any tradition. We all know that every tradition can give opportunity for the flesh. There are excesses. There are things that really probably shouldn't happen within tradition. I'm not going to critique. We can get comfortable with the style and perform it outwardly, but inwardly our hearts are cold. That's what happens with style. But I want to honor traditions today. I'm not critiquing them, and I want to talk about them at their best. So those are the two, the two uh, ground rules. The first tradition I'm going to talk about is the hymns tradition. When we think of hymns, our minds should go to theologically rich songs that will have multiple verses, and they're sung in a in a congregation typically by a piano or an organ. That isn't always the way it happens, but that's what we tend to think about. We think about buildings like this with pews and hymnals and choir lofts. I grew up in this tradition. I grew up in a tradition of hymn singing. An interesting thing, when you're a kid and you're in this tradition, I can remember sitting in, in church with, uh, with my dad and I used to love to sit on the edge of the, uh, on the inside edge of the pew because in our tradition, the choir would come, would process in at the beginning of the service singing the opening hymn. And as they would walk by, I would hear all these people singing different parts. So I'd hear the, the melody and then I'd hear the alto part and I'd hear the tenor part and I'd hear the baritone and whatever else they had. And I just loved the fact that this beautiful harmony was passing by my ears. It was my favorite part of church. And I'd stand next to my dad, and my dad was sort of a lay leader in the church, and I would listen to him, and he'd be singing this amazing melody as well, but it didn't fit the other melodies of the other people. And I thought, this is really cool. When you get to be important in a church, they give you your own melody. <laughs> it wasn't until I got older that I realized, no, he's just tone deaf. <laughs> he couldn't find a note if you pinned it to his chest. It's just, it just wasn't his deal. And so... But it, but it revealed to me that this was somewhat mystical, this idea of singing these songs. There's sort of the words where I would try to look at and follow them, and they were archaic, and they got broken up in weird ways, and, and 
you know, I didn't really understand music, and so I kind of got lost. And eventually, as I grew up, I just sort of thought, you know what? That's just not my deal. Just, just not my deal. I grew to disdain this tradition because my heart grew cold to the truth of God. Church seemed like a place for the dead, and hymns were dead people's songs. I wanted rock and roll. But when God arrested my life and opened my eyes to Him in college, I remember rediscovering the hymn tradition. I remember opening up hymnals and just pouring over songs that I had sung and had never really understood, and now it was coming alive to me, and these truths were just coming out, and the way they were expressed were so poetic and so vivid and so amazing, and I just soaked it up, and then I would love to go to church and sing those hymns of the truth that was in them. So where does the hymn tradition come from? Well, we know it comes from the New Testament because Paul says, sing hymns. He's probably talking about people who are writing hymns for the church. They're actually hymns that are embedded in the New Testament, sections of hymns that are clearly taken from what people sing and placed into the Word of God. But the hymn tradition that we are most familiar with actually began in the Protestant Reformation, 1500s. And actually began as protest music. The hymn tradition that you see in your hymnals is protest music. You see what was happening is the first generation reformers, the Luthers and Calvins and those guys, they recognized that the institutional church that they had been in had deprived people of truth. And one way they deprived people of truth is they've taken the music away from the people, they put it up, into a performance, and they actually sang in intentionally in language that the common people didn't understand. The idea is that this is a mystical experience that you don't understand because you don't know anything. And that was the intent of music. And they said, no. We're going to reform the church, and we're going to bring music back to the people. And we're going to connect them to the Word of God. So they began writing new hymns. And those hymns were either taking Scripture directly and placing them into familiar melodies, or they were writing actually beautiful uh, expressions of the truth and writing melodies to fit those expressions so that the people always began singing the truth. And so this idea of the hymn tradition we have is built around the idea that we sing truth together. And that's how we hold on to it. We don't trust an institution to tell us what we should believe. We trust the Word of God and we sing the truth of God in what we do. At its best, the hymn tradition expresses the let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you part of this text. Now, I actually discovered something really important about the hymn tradition just this past spring. I mean, I've been in doing this for a while, and I just discovered something this past spring. I was, in a, I was at a church down in, um, down in D.C., Capitol Hill Baptist Church, at a, at a weekend kind of conference, and was, had a chance to sit in a small group with the uh, lead pastor there, Mark Dever, and he was just talking about their church experience and why they do what they do. And it's a traditional Baptist church, and he said, he said, well, you know, there's a reason. I know that a lot of people, you know, he, he knew I was from Sovereign Grace. And you guys do all the band stuff, and I got that, no problem. But here's what we do. He said, we don't use a band. We have about 800 people in our church. We don't use a band. We use a piano and a couple of singers. And the reason we do it is this, is because we want the congregation to sing truth to each other. He was not critiquing, but he was saying, we want the loudest thing going on in our service to be the people around us singing. And I thought, yeah, there's something beautiful about that. That's why two weeks ago, we just had David up here playing the piano, and we had people singing parts, but not so loud that you couldn't hear your voice. And if you were singing, you sang the old rugged cross, you recognized, I'm not listening to somebody up there. I'm singing, and my neighbor's singing, and maybe they're a little out of tune, but praise God, we're all singing together. That's what hymns are supposed to do in the congregation. One of the pastors there, Jonathan Lehman, said it this way. 
the most beautiful instrument in any Christian service is the sound of the congregation singing. Now, we can use instruments. We can, there's plenty of biblical warrant for using various instruments and using a choir, but there is a truth there that we want to keep and preserve, that our singing means something because we're singing truth together. Unity in diversity. So when we're, we sing these hymns, ponder the words you're singing. If you're not familiar with this tradition, that's fine. If a lot of these hymns aren't familiar to you, that's fine. Just read the words and reflect on the words and let your brothers and sisters around you help you enjoy the truth that's being sung. The hymn tradition teaches us that no matter what happens around us, listen to this, God's truth and promises are unshakable. And boy, do we need that right now. Now, if you want to get exposure to this tradition, if it really is something you're not familiar with, I'm going I'm to do a shameless plug here. Um, album just recently came out together for the gospel, volume three. There's actually three volumes. It's a, it's a, there's a picture up there. And this is really just so if you'd like to, you can just check it out. Um, it's, a, it's a live recording of 10,000 men with just a piano singing hymns. And it'll stir your heart. And there's three of them. This is the third one. So I would recommend you consider that if you want to get familiar with the power and majesty of the hymn tradition. So that's the first tradition. Second tradition we're calling the gospel tradition. By gospel tradition, I mean for our purposes, the black gospel tradition that's come out of the African-American experience and the African-American church. Now, I'm going to need to ask my black brothers and sisters to have mercy. This is not my tradition. I didn't grow up in it. And I'm going to be describing something that I'm learning. And so, be kind. And if I could get an amen to that, I would really appreciate it. Okay, great. Thank you. My comments aren't to educate you. My comments are to help people like me who need education. Um, so here we go. And God help me. Uh, historically speaking, there's no one black gospel tradition. But actually several streams of culture and experience have worked together to shape how the congregation has sung in the black church. Melva Coston is an esteemed theologian of church music who has dedicated her life to studying the black gospel, gospel tradition that she grew up in. And according to Dr. Coston, she says, the worship of African-American Christians is informed by at least four streams of tradition. Traditional African-American primal worldviews, Judeo-Christian religion, African-American folk religion, which emanated from worldviews shaped in the American context in a crisis of slavery and oppression, and Western European American Christianity. African-American liturgy, by that she means the way church happens, is reflective of the experience of a particular people deeply aware of the power and the promise of God. So, if you are not part of that tradition, recognize that it goes far deeper and exists far longer in time than you might perceive. At its best, the gospel tradition expresses the teaching and admonition, admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all of this text. 
we saw a little bit of that today. There's a diversity of ways this tradition can function. It can function with a leader and a call and response. It can function as hymns. It can function as, as sort of a free expression of singing. It's beautiful. It's diverse. In his insightful book, Black and Reformed, pastor and teacher Anthony Carter describes the spirit-led dimension growing up in the black gospel tradition that he experienced. Pastor Carter says, the songs we sang were not projected onto an overhead video screen. <laughs> you know, and I, was, I was, Calvin was trying to keep up with where this thing was going today. I was, you did a great job, man, but it's tough. <laughs> um, nor were many of them found in the pew hymnal. Neither the organist nor the pianist could be seen poring over sheets of music, yet their fingers seemed to intuitively dance over the keys. Despite the lack of formalism, the fervor with which we expressed these songs was not diminished nor was the clarity of the content obscured. The words of such songs were part of us, and their melodies resonated within us, though through them theology came alive and faith was given expression. Through them I saw my heritage of faith, and it was fixed. Like I said, Gospel tradition is not my tradition, but there was a point where I think I caught it. Um, back when my wife and I got married, for about two years, Jill was in a black gospel singing group. Now, you look at her and you say, how did that work? I will say our friend... Rosella Washington used to say to her, honey, you've got it in you. you just got to let it out. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so she was part of this group, and uh, it, was, it was six other ladies and her, and they would go around to, to churches, mostly in Norristown, North Philly, but kind of throughout the area, doing uh, Sunday mornings and then doing other sort of ceremonies, and I was the roadie. I was the roadie for a black gospel singing group for two years, and, um, and it was great, because I would just come in and say, oh, I'm with the band, and, uh, <laughs> you know, my job was to kind of carry equipment and to kind of move things around and, try, you know, interact with people, here's what you know, need, that kind of stuff, and uh, we had a great time. It was just, a, it was a blast, um, but it gave me a chance to sit in uh, a, a lot of different services within the black community, because most of these were African-American churches, and, and it was just, it was great, so I got in. And, you know, my experience was something of, the, you know, again, where I'm coming from, I, I, we'll talk about it in a second, I was, my tradition as a Christian is more in the contemporary world, and so I was used to the, you know, the, the lyrics projecting, I was listening to Noah's song, there's a band up there, and I know where I'm going, there's a guy leading it, and I know exactly where I'm, what my job is here um, in the singing part, or in the hymn tradition where you just have a book and you just follow everything else. In this one, I felt lost. I mean, people were, some were standing up, some were sitting down. Do I stand up? Do I sit down? Some folks were singing. Some folks weren't singing. They were just listening. Some people had their eyes closed. Some people didn't have their eyes closed. So I'm there. I'm trying to figure out where do I, what do I do? What's the, what's the protocol? And, and so I'm there, and I'm like, and so I thought, okay, I just got to listen, right? So I just chilled out, and I started to listen. And, and it was singing. I, I don't remember the song. It was you know, I, I really don't remember the song, but it was a song like maybe the Tasha Cobb song we, that, that we did at the end, um, where it's very simple, and there's this just repetition of a call. And I remember sitting there, and I'm just listening, and I'm enjoying the music, and it was really well done, and, and I'm there. And this is, this is in the church. This wasn't the, 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 the group that Jill was in. This was actually in the church service. Um, they were good, too, but that wasn't what I'm talking about. Um, but I'm listening in service, and I'm there, and I'm, and I'm, I'm starting to th think about the words. 
You know, let, let's say it was the Taj Kabul. I want to be where you are. And I'm sitting there going, do I? Where is that? What am I going to have to leave behind? What do I want to keep? What do I want to take with me? And I started arguing with myself as I'm listening in this song, and it just kind of keeps coming at me. And, and, and at some point, I start to realize, no, 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 I really... I want to be where you are. And I started to say, I know I really do, Lord. I, I, know, I know where I am. I know how to live my life. I know what, how far I have to go. But, Lord, I want to be where you are. And, and, and it just kept pressing and pressing and pressing into my soul. Do you want to be where I am? That's what Jesus was saying. Do you want to be? Do you, do you want to do anything you can to get there? Would you cross a desert? Would you give up anything to be where I am? And, and this whole dialogue between me and the Spirit of God, at the end, I'm saying, yes, Lord, I want to. And I couldn't do anything but start standing up and just shouting. Not because it was happening up there, because it was happening here. And I got it. I think I got it. This matters. You're not going to let me just sit in the pew and think about the eagles. You're going to make me have to answer the question, do I want to be where you are? And I said yes. And I still say yes. That's, I think, what we're supposed to experience. And that's just one song. Joanne Adams, gospel singer, says this. I think it's really helpful. There's a sound that comes from gospel music that doesn't come from anything else. It's a sound of peace. It's a sound of, I'm going to make it through all of this. Amen. At its best. Gospel music declares that you are not where you ultimately belong. You're on a journey to a better place. We're on a journey. No matter what happens to us here, like Yolanda says, we're going to make it through all of this. And we need that. Right now, all of us. Now, another shameless plug. If you want some exposure to the gospel tradition, I mean, you can go on, you can Spotify. There's any number of great artists you can tie into. But I do recommend a project that our friends at Epiphany Fellowship up in North Philly put together. Their worship team's called Doxa, and a few years ago they put out a, a, comp, a compilation of songs called Sinners. I think there's a picture up there. You can go look that up. We actually sang a couple of the songs from that album today. So I would recommend that if you're trying to get a feel for this. It's live. You want to, my perspective is you want to hear gospel music live if you can. Um, so, third one, contemporary worship tradition. This is the most common way we sing here. It's been the way we really have sang at Covenant Fellowship since we started back in the 80s. Back then, it was kind of new and fresh and, and sort of edgy to have sort of the band up and lead that way. Now, it seems like every church has a contemporary service. Even trends in current black gospel music are moving that direction away from the large choirs to a worship band uh, orientation. Um, and... Uh, so you have a worship band, you have a worship leader, you have lyrics projected overhead, and you have more of a verse, chorus, bridge kind of an approach to the song. So this is my accepted tradition. This is where I'm familiar, which means I'm in danger of being comfortable and just going through the motions on this one. But it wasn't always that way. I'm old enough to remember when having guitars in church was edgy. In fact, I, my, experience, my first experience with this was that I had been saved 
uh, for about a week. And um, my friends who helped me come to Christ said, you got to come to church with us. So we went to a church in Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, which was started by a bunch of guys from the 82nd Airborne. Um, and so, and you have to remember, when I got saved, I was a Marxist, which means I thought the U.S. Army was one of the worst things in the world. A week later, I'm in the middle of the 82nd Airborne in church. So I walk in, but I see a band, right? I'm oh, cool. Yeah, I'm in a band. Um, maybe you'll let me sit in. And uh, so, so I'm there, and we start singing. And, you know, and we're singing. I thought, this is pretty cool. These are simple songs, kind of like, you know, listen to the Eagles. Um, not the football team, the band. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm standing there by standing. I'm just standing, I'm listening, walking, and trying to learn it all. I'm a believer, but I have no clue what's going on. So anyway, right in the middle of it, the worship leader, who I found out later was a captain in the 82nd Airborne, um, he just stops everything. He just says, our worship is not pleasing to God. We need to repent. Now, he might as well said, drop and give me 20. <laughs> because everybody there, boom, on the floor, crying out, praying for forgiveness, except me. I'm literally the only person standing, I'm going. <laughs> I, I thought I was doing pretty well. And, and uh. And then they get up and they start singing again, and boom, the roof's blown off. What's going on there? What's going on there? People taking worship seriously. Why? Because we have something serious to worship about. And that worship leader, though I wouldn't recommend the military style of leadership, I do think he had the idea right. We don't come to God, just go through the motions. At its best, contemporary worship says this is real. This is serious, and we're here because God is worthy of our worship. That's what we're meant to get out of it. Why is that? Now, it gets to that, that part of this passage that says, Declare thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, the posture we have is thankfulness. Lord, we know where we were. We know what we were about. We know what you've had to do to save us. And so we want to express our hearts in worship. In the hymn tradition, it was, it was born out of protest. And the gospel tradition was maybe born out of suffering. The contemporary tradition of worship is born out of revival. You see, people whose eyes were radically open to Jesus. You saw it develop in the 60s as people were being saved out of a secular world. The, the worship, the contemporary tradition comes from people who were in a secular world who get saved and come into the church and say, we want to worship, but this is the only music we know, so let's do it this way. They, they want to express the radical effect of the gospel in their lives in familiar musical language. Their language included electrical instruments and song forms that fit the verse, chorus, and bridge form of pop music. Sometimes it was uh, just setting scripture to music. Often it's just writing a whole new set of songs, maybe even new hymns. A lot of the great hymns we sing now were written, though hymns written with the idea of a contemporary format. Contemporary worship tradition... It's constantly changing, but at its best, it declares that God is real, and he's mighty to save. We need that today, don't we? We need God is real, and he's mighty to save. We sang that truth today. The church exists in a world that is constantly changing, is hostile or indifferent to God, but God is on the move Saving lost souls. And when those newly saved souls gather together, they need to be able to express the passionate thankfulness in their hearts to God 
for what God has done in ways that are familiar to them. That means sometimes guitars or loops or beats or other things. It's okay as long as the focus is not on song style but on song content. Then the passion is directed toward God and not toward something else. As contemporary worship leader Matt Papa has said, worship doesn't happen when a guy gets on stage with a guitar. It happens when faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ. If you want to get a taste of what contemporary worship can be, again, another shameless plug, check out Sovereign Grace Music, frankly. The latest album that came out earlier this year is called Sooner Count the Stars. Beautiful songs worshiping the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Check it out. All the albums I mentioned can be streamed or purchased online. If you want to grow in your appreciation of unfamiliar traditions, then learn to worship in them through the week. So this is the close. I'd like to ask the band to come up as we close. And I want the choir to come up too and just kind of be off to the side here so you don't get between me and the folks. But my closing point is this. If we're a diverse church and we need to embrace diverse traditions, that's what we need to do. We don't just respect or tolerate other traditions. Each tradition brings something distinctive to our worship experience that we need. At its very best, hymns, worship is the voice that defends timeless truth. Gospel is the voice that looks to God in hope. And contemporary is the voice that lives on mission. The hymn tradition was born in response to the lie that God requires you to work your salvation. The gospel tradition was born in response to the lie that God doesn't care about you. And the contemporary tradition was born in response to the lie that God is dead. Hymns take us into the depths of our justification through Christ. Gospel takes us into the depths of our deliverance by Christ. And contemporary takes us into the depths of our new life in Christ. We need all this truth and more as we sing our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We need to learn how to engage our hearts, our minds, our voices with not only what we're singing, but with how we're singing. And along with others, as we sing, let's not play flavor of the month in our worship. Let's not limit ourselves to what's familiar or what we prefer. Let's be unified in truth and diverse in worship because that is, in fact, who we are at Risen Hope. Amen. Now, we're going to close with a familiar hymn. I've chosen it for a particular reason, and this is the reason. Now, I'm sure all of you here are familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. Now, I'm sure that most of you are aware that it was written by a man named John Newton, who was an Anglican pastor in the 1700s who wrote a lot of the great hymns that we sing. Some of you may be aware of the, the circumstances out of which this song was written. Newton was a slave trader. Newton captained a slave ship before he was a believer. And on one journey where he had just deposited a cargo of people, he was returning to England and his ship was caught in a terrible storm. And he's going down. And so he lashed himself to the wheel. And he began to cry out to God. Didn't believe in God. Cried out to God. Interestingly, he cried out that God would save him from the storm. And forgive him for his wickedness. And God did both. God miraculously allowed him to get home. God changed his heart, and he left the slave trade, and 
he felt a call into the ministry, and he became a pastor. And as a pastor, he began to work for the abolition of the slave trade. And, and he wrote this song as an expression of gratefulness for how God had saved him. Now, not many of you may know where the melody to the song came from. If you look in the hymnal, you'll see Amazing Grace, John Newton. Melody unknown. The reason for that is that Amazing Grace is written in pentatonic scales, five-note scales. That scale, it's a scale that can be, you can do the whole song on the black keys of the piano. Newton got that melody from slaves because on the way from Africa into slavery, he would hear this melody being sung by people below. He didn't understand the words. He just knew it was a song of sorrow. And so when he wrote this song to forever remind himself of what truly he'd been saved from and to forever remind everyone who sings the song what amazing grace really requires, he connected his words, the words of a white former slave trader to the black keys on the piano. When we sing it, we are always reminded and should be reminded of the cost of grace that we don't pay. It's paid for us by Jesus. And that's when we're to look. Let's stand.